Our subject matter this morning is the joy of identity with Christ, and our text is Luke chapter 21, verses 10 and following. You'll notice from your birth, uh, bulletin outline that along with national upheaval that is predicted in the other synoptics, Luke refers to the persecution of believers that is going to take place coterminous, that is at the same time that the nations rise up and make war against one another. In Luke 21 verse 10 it talks about nations rising against nation. It talks about the natural catastrophes, the earthquakes, famines, and so on, which we looked at last week from Mark's account. But then Luke tells us, verse 12 of our text, but before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. Matthew's account shows us the connection with the nations, saying, you will be hated by all nations because of me. Matthew 24, verse 9. Mark's account gives no specific timeline, but his teaching on this follows what he wrote about the escalation of wars and natural catastrophes. <coughs> so we could say it this way, that his account is in harmony with Luke's account and with Matthew's account. Now, as we take all of this into consideration, the trouble seems to arise from the nations, from the world, refusing to abide the presence and testimony of God's people giving forth the gospel and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the problem. In other words, our day is a macrocosm of what occurred with Jesus' ministry in Palestine in the days of his earthly sojourn and with his apostles in their missionary outreach after Jesus' ascension. Neither Jesus nor his disciples had an easy go of it as they taught the gospel to the pagan and idolaters of their day. Nor was Jesus' teaching well received by the religious elite of the Jewish faith. I mean, he did not fit in with their vision of a political Messiah who would overthrow Rome and emancipate them from Roman rule. They wanted a Messiah who could raise an army of warriors with swords and shields and chariots. Not a Messiah with the spiritual sword of God's word that brought conviction and wounds to the conscience for sin. And certainly not shields against the damning lusts of the flesh. And chariots, they wanted chariots like that of of horse-drawn chariots, battle armaments and those things, but not a chariot like we read concerning Elijah, as they, Elijah and his successor Elisha, as they were walking along, talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind, 2 Kings 2, verse 11. 
And Elisha, Elijah's successor, picked up Elijah's cloak and resumed the ministry that fell to his shoulders that day from his predecessor. Well, Israel wasn't looking for any of those spiritual aspects, you see, of a Messiah. Spiritual sword, spiritual shields, spiritual chariot. No, 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 no. Give us something to put us, sink our teeth into. And so when Jesus came on the scene and preached the gospel, when he preached love one another, when he dealt with the things of sin in the human heart, they said, ah, get out of here. We don't want to hear you. You can't possibly be the Messiah that was predicted in our scriptures of the Old Testament. And so persecution arose, not only from the world, with regard to the people of God, but with regard also from the Jewish community, from the Christian community, we might say. This persecution that I'm talking about should not surprise any of us, but it often does. I mean, we are flabbergasted to think that God's people, the church, the body of Christ, suffers persecution. We shouldn't be flabbergasted. Jesus predicted, if the world hates you, and it's not a, it's not a question of, is it going to happen or any of that. If the world hates you, and it's going to, that's the idea. Keep in mind that it hated me first. What do you expect? He's saying. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. We were talking about that in the adult class this morning. I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you? No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. John 15, verse 18 through 21. Now, the church should not be surprised by persecution. I mean, if we only had that verse, the, or little, the, this little section of verses, if we only had that from John 15, shouldn't that be enough to put up our antennas and alert us to the fact that, you know, things aren't going to go real well. And this chapter, John 15, is part of the teaching, John 14, 15, and 16, those three chapters given to Jesus' disciples the night of his betrayal and arrest in which he was incarcerated and then tried before Pontius Pilate. So he was going to be an object lesson living out his words of warning. We could say... These were his parting instructions to his disciples before he was crucified. And that makes these words very sobering. It's kind of, here's my last will and testament. You better listen up. 
I'm telling it like it is. And then as the events unfolded that night, the disciples got a first-hand look of the hatred of the world that's going to come upon them. But as I have indicated, this is not something the church in America has taken to heart. Why not? Well, there's a number of reasons. Number one, who likes the idea of being persecuted? Hello. I don't see any hands. Who likes the idea of being locked away in a dungeon, deprived of your freedom, your friends, your family, being physically abused, even executed? No volunteers? These are not pleasant things to contemplate. And so believers, and I think some misguided theologians, have tried to mitigate the words of Jesus by advocating that God will come to the rescue by either defeating the enemies of the gospel before they can do much damage to the church or by teaching that the church will be raptured, that is whisked away to heaven like Elijah before the worst happens. Well, you know what? Neither of these things is accurate. Jesus clearly taught that what the world did to him they will do to us. And they'll do it to us, he says in our text, because of him. Note, the persecution is related to our association with Jesus and the gospel. Verse 12 of our text. All on account of, says Jesus, my name. You're bearing my name. Don't, don't you know that that's where we get our name? Christ in we're Christians, Christians. We're bearing his name. And he says, that's why you're going to be persecuted. You are bearing my name. Oh, if that's the case, we got an, we got an easy solution. Ditch Jesus and all will be well with you. How about that? Why don't we listen to the other words of Jesus and agree with those? If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Why don't we go that route? John 15, verse 19. Well, some are going to go that route. Sad to say. We're going to look at that today. Jesus and your fidelity to him brings the world's animosity down upon you. Verse 12, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver, listen, see, see the extent of this. They will deliver you to the synagogues. These are the religious institutions. And prisons. So the judicial authorities will be involved in this persecution. You will be brought before kings and governors. So the political authorities will be brought to bear in these persecutions, and all on account of my name. The intimidation then, the intimidation then, is that all will go well with you if you renounce your faith in Christ. During the persecution of the Middle Ages, the believers were given the option to save themselves by recanting their faith. All you got to do. 
say, I renounce Christ. You can live. We won't do anything to you. David French, writing for the National Review in the January 22nd issue of this year, writes this. Back in December, I posted about an American pastor, Saeed Abedani, imprisoned and abused in Iran. The Revolutionary Guard seized him and held him in one of Iran's most notorious prisons, accusing him of unspecified national security crimes before becoming an American citizen. He's an American citizen. Before becoming an American citizen, Pastor Saeed converted from Islam to Christianity and had participated in Tehran's very small house church movement. Ordered to stop his work with the house church movement, he moved to Idaho, but he continued humanitarian work in Iran, most recently by raising money to build an orphanage. Last September, Iran authorities raided his family home, ransacked it, confiscated all of his religious materials. They cast, car carted Pastor Saeed off to jail, beat him there, held him for months without charges, denied his bail, and confiscated every dollar he had raised to build the orphanage. A few weeks ago, Iran finally defined the charges against him claiming his work in the house churches more than a decade ago undermined Iran's national security. End quote. Brethren, what could be more benign than raising money to help orphan children when Iran should be doing this themselves. These are their orphans in their country. Well, the issue is that a Christian pastor is living out the Christian faith in the midst of a country that promotes a religion of hate for anything good and anything godly. The real battle is identified by the Apostle Paul who wrote, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6 verse 12. He's saying, the people, the, the things we're really fighting are not flesh and blood. They're not you know, the, the National Guard of the Iranian people. The real battle is we're fighting Satan and his demons. And he says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Ephesians 2 verse 2. Satan's been around a long time. He's in these countries. Satan dislikes any competition and Islam tolerates no competition. Everywhere in the Muslim world, Christians are being persecuted. And that world is in our own backyard. Now just this week, just this week on the internet, a letter 
got sneaked out of Evan Prison in Iran, a letter written by Saeed. And here's what he writes. My dear friends, the conditions here get so very difficult that my eyes get blurry. My body does not have the strength to walk, and my steps become very weak and shaky. Various bullying groups, the psychological warfare, a year of not seeing my family, physical violence, actions committed to humiliate me, insults, being mocked, being confronted with extremists in the prison who create another prison within the prison, and the death threats. It's interesting that because I am a Christian pastor, I am carefully watched. I am expected to smile at them despite what is being done and to understand why they are doing all of these things. But of course I can clearly see what's going on. And because I want to serve God, I see all of these difficulties as golden opportunities and great doors to serve. There are empty containers who are there are empty containers here who are thirsty for a taste of the living water, and we can quench their thirst by giving them Jesus Christ. Maybe you are also in such situations, so pray and seek God that he would use you and direct you in the pressures and difficulties of your life. It always amazes me that these guys who are in the most horrendous of situations they write letters out, and what are they trying to do? They're trying to encourage you, the reader, in your faith, Tremendous, tremendous grace. He says, I love him, speaking of Christ. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous to me. I now know that I have not been forgotten and that we are together in this path. God gives me grace. This is my message for the church. Stay strong for his glory. He will come back soon. Be with God and give your best effort for his kingdom. Pastor Saeed, servant of Jesus Christ, in his chains. Just this week. This guy's in the news. The world persecutes. He is being persecuted because of his association with Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, what is the cause for the persecution of Christians? I'm going to give it to you from Matthew 24 and verse 12, which reads, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. How cold is cold? Verse 16 of our text. You will be betrayed even by parents brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. Mark's account says, brother will betray brother to death, and the father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Mark 13, verse 12 and 13. The prophet Micah issued this warning. Listen to him. 
He says, the godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman has come. The day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. Micah 7, verses 2 through 6. Do you know that Jesus' teaching echoes the same? He says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Is that what you think? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, You know, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what's right? Luke 12, 51 through 57. See what he's saying? You're pretty good. You're, you're experts at reading the weather. But you can't read the signs of the time. You don't know you're in trouble. But you are. The love of most will grow cold. And again I ask the question, how cold is cold? Well, cold enough where filial ties, parent-child, brother-sister, and marital ties, the man or woman with whom you share a bed becomes the one who turns you into the authorities because of your faith. This will not be a minor issue. Jesus says the love of most will grow cold. Your blood ties will not preserve you. Your marital ties will not preserve you. And now you know why. Jesus taught, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So he's quoting Micah here. But then he adds this. 
Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, verse 34 through 38. See, it's bad enough that these things are coming and that they're coming because of a, a coldness that develops even in, in our filial ties. That's bad enough. But then he says, you know, if you oscillate in that direction, if you capitulate, if you give in on your fidelity to me for the sake of family, then you haven't taken up your cross. You haven't followed me. Elsewhere, Jesus taught that there is room for only one supreme love in our life. And he said it this way, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Mark 12, verse 30. And then the second commandment, he says, is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. So even when the neighbor is your family, see? That's second. They come second. To God. So the cause of the persecution is an increased wickedness resulting in the love of most growing cold. Some of you have already experienced this. I know you have. The day you committed to Christ is the day your family almost painted a swastika on you. You're anathema to them. They might be cordial, they might talk to you and so on, but they don't like you anymore. And they have forbidden you. I'm talking about religious things, because they think you're a wacko. Well, they thought Jesus was a wacko too. The very one who had created the universe in which they live. Number three. This is a shocker. The surprising participants of the persecution. Matthew 24, verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. Did I read that right? At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Matthew 24, verse 10 and 11. These verses warn us that the enemy to come is not simply our filial family members who share our bloodline, but our spiritual family members who allegedly share our faith. Our minds go to Judas. In every way, he played the role of a disciple. Every way. If you think Judas stood out as some anti-Christ person among the disciples, so that when Jesus talked about a traitor among them, they said, oh yeah, oh yeah, we know who that is. That, that's, that's that Judas guy. 
If you think that, you're sadly mistaken. He played the role of a disciple while he was among the twelve. He was among the disciples that Jesus sent out in Matthew 10, two by two on their first preaching assignment to declare the kingdom of, the kingdom of God is near. You mean Judas was out preaching away, the kingdom of God is near? Yeah. He was out there doing it. Oh, it gets worse. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Was Judas out there doing those kind of things? Yeah. So, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, didn't Jesus warn in Matthew 7 of those people that could say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied, preached in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name have done many miraculous signs? Surely we're part of your family, right? We could do all these wonderful things. And he says to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Judas was by Jesus' side to witness his miracles. He was by Jesus' side to hear his teaching. For three years, he was in the group. He was entrusted with the purse of the group as their treasure, but even so, he used to help himself now and again to the money, thereby indicating where his real love was. In time, Judas contacted the religious authorities. This is an amazing thing. They didn't contact him. Read the scriptures. He contacted them. He contacted the religious authorities of the day whom he knew were looking for some way to accuse Jesus and arrest him and execute him. So he went to them and he agreed to hand Jesus over for the price of 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. And in John 18, we see him at his worst. He led the soldiers and representatives of the religious elite to the Garden of Gethsemane, which he knew to be a favorite place of prayer for Jesus and his disciples. And there and there, with a kiss, he identified Jesus as the one to be arrested. Oh, you won't have to worry about who he is. I'll just give him a kiss. And the one I kiss, that's the one you want to arrest. Judas, Judas, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus said to him. Paul tells of another disciple, one named Demas, who allegedly converted to Christianity during Paul's ministry at Thessalonica. Paul identified him along with Luke as fellow workers in a letter to his friend Philemon. You can read it, Philemon verse 24. He is tagged as one who, along with Paul, sent greetings in a letter to the church at Colossae. Colossians 4, verse 14. You know, I have salutation at the end. And Paul would list the various peoples that were sending their greetings. And there's Demas. But when Paul was imprisoned in Rome and awaiting his trial before Emperor Nero, Paul wrote to Timothy saying, Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want 
to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you keep your head in all these situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone back to Thessalonica. Only Luke is with me. At my first defense, no one came to my support. But everyone, and he doesn't name them, he just talks about the group. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by my side and he gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 and following. When push came to shove and the chips were down, Mr. Demas said, This is too much for me. I'm out of here. I, I, I didn't sign up for this, Mr. Ball. They're taking you to court tomorrow. And you want me to stand alongside of you? And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I wish you well. And he was gone. Such apostasies from the faith have occurred historically again and again and again. For various reasons. Sometimes it's money, as in the case of Judas. Sometimes it's, it's a love of the sin life of the world, and people want to go back to that. That was Demas. But mostly, mostly I believe it's for fear of the reprisals from the authorities for being a Christian. It's Saeed Abidani all over again. We'll persecute you. We'll hurt you for your faith. And before Saeed, it was Pastor Yusuf Nardakhani who was sentenced to death in Iran, but he was released because of international pressure. There were so many letters that came into Iran, they couldn't touch that guy. But he was on death row. You want to be a Christian? You know one of the things they're doing with Saeed? They're jabbing nails and stuff in his hands. You want to be a Christian? Ha <laughs> ha! Take that. Want to be part of the crucified one? We'll help you. They did the same thing to the Baptists who believed in immersion and taught immersion. And our forefathers were taken out in boats in the Danube River, their hands tied behind their back. You want to be a Baptist? We'll baptize you. And they drowned them in the Danube River. We don't know, brethren what our brethren have gone through. And you're going to sit here today in the 21st century and we're going to say, oh, it's going to be different for us. God's going to come in and rescue us. We're not going to have to go through any of this. I wish it were so, but it is just wishful thinking on my part. But I am happy to report that such intimidation tactics do not work on genuine believers. Let me read it for you from the writer of Hebrews. He says to his audience, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest 
in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side along with those who were so treated. They weren't Demas, see? They didn't leave. They stood right there alongside of the guy that was being indicted. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourself had a better and lasting possessions. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and He will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. So that's what He's saying. He's saying, you need to hang in there. You need to live by faith. My righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But... Here's the next verse. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. I love it. But of those who believe and are saved. Hebrews 10, verse 32 through 39. We need to work on genuine love for one another, brethren. I mean it. John writes, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 1 John 3, 14 through 16. It's coming. Get ready. We trust the Lord. Care for us. Now this sermon is entitled The Joy. <laughs> the Joy of Being <clears throat> Identified with Jesus. So far it hasn't been too joyous, has it? <clears throat> and that's what the world would think too. Because they're looking through uh, real thick glasses. You know, it's, everything's distorted. They can't see so what's the elements of joy that we see in all this? Number one, the joy of giving a faithful witness to Christ and the gospel. We read it from Saeed's letter. He's saying these people need the water of life and maybe I can dribble some on them. Maybe I can be that fountain for them. Luke 21, verse 12 and 13, They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. That is, to the authorities who, rest, who will arrest you. Matthew puts it this way, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Matthew 24, verse 14. And look at Mark 13, verse 10. He says essentially the same thing. 
you hear this and you say, I can't do, I, I can't do that. I have a hard time talking to my family and friends about Jesus. I stumble, bumble my way through a discussion on the gospel and I always come out feeling uh, totally that I blew it. That I did more harm than good and I should have kept my mouth shut. Isn't that way we think sometimes? Well, even if that is your view, God has a different analysis. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 through 9. See, it isn't about you, it's about God. <laughs> it's about the gospel. It's not about your abilities, it's about God's grace. Our text before us, Luke 21, gives a different encouragement. Listen to this, verse 14. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. Ooh, that's different. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Wow, they're going to arrest me. I'm going to be brought before the authorities as a witness. I can't be a witness. And he says, don't, don't fret about that. You're not to worry about being a witness. God's going to give you the words you need to say. And Jesus is saying they're going to be so profound. And that reminds me of Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? So profound that the authorities and so on will not be able to refute you or contradict you. We have this promise. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, it's foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, He's the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19 through 25. Don't fret when you're hauled before the authority. God is out to belittle them, to reduce them. And he'll give you a wisdom that they cannot refute. Number two, there's the joy of suffering the same treatment as our Lord. Did they not arrest Jesus? Did they not haul him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council? 
And after that initial interrogation, was he not transferred to the Praetorian Guard that was housed in Jerusalem? Did he not have his day in court before Pontius Pilate, with whom he had great opportunity to tell him of his true identity, that his kingdom was not of this world, but every bit as real as anything Rome had as real, that Pilate would have no power over him unless God the Father had given him power over him, and that he, Jesus, was the truth, the very truth that Pilate was looking for. Tremendous testimony of our Lord before the authorities when they arrested him. Paul put it this way, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to know that. Becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3 verse 10. Peter words it this way. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Well, that's one of the ways you know it. See? If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do Good. 1 Peter 4, verse 13 and following. One of the things that should give us joy as we think of our identification with Christ is that whatever happens to us, we're, we're probably going to find a parallel in the life of Christ. And that's one of the... The joy part is this. That must mean I really am a disciple of Christ. I'm taking my licks from society because of him, because of my identification with him. If I weren't a Christian, they wouldn't be doing this to me. And that's true. The world loves its own, Jesus says. So take your licks and say with Paul, I want to share in Christ's suffering. Because there's a glory coming, too, that you're going to share in. And that's my last point. There's the joy of life eternal. Look at our text, verse 19. By standing firm, you will gain life. The martyrs lost their physical lives, but they gained true life, which in the end will include a resurrected, glorified, and immortal body that will be reunited with soul. Verse 27 and 28 of our text. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. The world doesn't have that hope. But you do. 
And in the meantime, verse 36, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and so that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. The question, this question was asked by the Apostle John in the Revelation. In Revelation 6, verse 17, he says, The great day of their wrath, God the Father, God the Son, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's a very sobering question, isn't it? Stand means pass examination. As to appearance, Paul says, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Romans 14, verse 10. That is a given. But we'll be stand there dressed in our own shabby, inadequate self-righteousness, or will we stand there dressed in Jesus' perfect righteousness? They're going to stand there. Examination day is coming. Of God's salvation, Paul wrote, He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. God did that. You didn't do that. God did that. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us from God wisdom. That is, He has become our righteous, I'm reading scripture, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Christ is that for us. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31. If you're dressed in the righteousness of Christ, judgment day is not scary. Elsewhere, Paul says, we are not appointed to wrath. Wrath is in part of our ledger page. Christ took the wrath for us. We're not appointed for judgment. We're not appointed for punishment. Christ took that all. And if by faith, He's our Savior, and He is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And when it talks about our redemption draws nigh, it's talking about Christ is coming to get His people. Hallelujah. I hope you're among the group. And if not, you can be through repentance and faith. Identity with Jesus Christ is a joy when you understand it. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, verse 25. It is enough, it's enough for the servant to be as his master. So though he does say to us, whatever they did to me, they're going to do for you. He's also saying, that's okay. That's enough. If you're like me, if you hang in there, 
and you will hang in there by God's grace. We are not of those who shrink back, but of those who believe and are saved. Lord Jesus, thank you for such a wonderful, marvelous, powerful grace reaching down and making us part of your family. And that has all these wonderful implications. If we're part of your family, no one can take us out of your family. We're not to fear those that kill the body, but those that one who can kill both body and soul in hell. For any unbeliever here this morning, the thing to fear is not the persecutors of this life. The thing, the person to fear is God Almighty who can cast both body and soul in hell. And how we need a Savior. How they, how you may need this Savior this morning. Why do you fight such love? You that are unsaved this morning. Why do you fight that? Lord, help them to see. Jesus' word says, Greater love that has no man than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you obey what I've commanded. Lord, make friends out of your enemies here today. Out there in broadcast land, make friends of your enemies. Grant the Holy Spirit to change hearts and grant faith and to renounce sin where the judgment of the Lord is coming, it's coming. And it will pale anything that man can do to us. Thank you that you have been willing to have us identify with you. Amen.